2: hello everybody welcome back to new books and biblical studies a podcast channel on the new books network I'm Rob Heaton and I focus on uh, new new and exciting scholarship in uh, New Testament and early Christian studies which is the orbit of my own PhD today we'll be talking to a pair of scholars who have co-authored a new book about the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth uh, which we will get to in a moment but first let me properly introduce them. Uh, First, we have James Crossley, who's a professor of religion, politics, and culture at MF Oslo, and the academic director of the Center for the Critical Study of Apocalyptic and Millenarian Movements. Uh, He has published widely on Christian origins and religion in English political history, including Spectres of John Ball, The Peasants' Revolt in English Political History, 1381 to 2020 that was published by equinox in 2022 he uh, likes and plays sport including uh, uh, football badminton and boxing so welcome james
0: Uh pleasure to be here
2: Okay, wonderful. Uh, we also have Robert Miles, who is a senior lecturer in New Testament at the University of Divinity in Australia. Originally from Aotearoa, New Zealand, he earned his Ph.D. from the University of Auckland in 2013. He is currently executive editor, along with Sarah Rollins, for, of the Journal for the Study of the Historical Jesus. Among his publications are The Homeless Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, published by Sheffield Phoenix Press in 2014, and the edited volume Class Struggle in the New Testament from 2019. Welcome, Robert, to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much. Great to be here.
2: And on top of all this, uh, uh, James and Robert are joining us today from separate locations from uh, England and uh, uh, Australia, respectively, to discuss the publication of their most recent book called Jesus, A Life in Class Conflict. It's published by Zero Books, which is an imprint of John Hunt Publishing. James and Robert, uh, welcome to you both uh, uh, to the New Books Network. Um, I should say that it was a delight to read uh, this book of yours and to become reacquainted with uh, the intellectual work going on in the uh, study of the historical Jesus. Uh, This is a subject that uh, really uh, garnered my attention in religious and theological studies about uh, 16, 17 years ago. Uh, but from the first few pages of this book of yours, it becomes clear that this is not the typical scholarly work on his, on the historical Jesus. Uh, you even declare to your readers that the book shouldn't be taken as religious or theological. Instead, you present your analysis as one of materialist criticism, uh, part of a quest for the historical materialist Jesus. That's not something that I think you hear too often in the scholarship. Uh, there are probably more than a few listeners as well to our podcast uh, whose heads might begin to spin at the uh, uh, idea of materialism and materialist criticism. So at the outset, I'm wondering if you can explain what this tradition of scholarship is, where it comes from, and how you believe it applies or should be applied to ancient sources like uh, the Gospels. And I'll put the questions first to James and Robert will chime in uh, secondarily from him if there's anything that uh, he, he forgot or anything that uh, he'd like to uh, uh, add to the discussion. So James, I'll put the question to you first. Uh,
0: okay, uh, uh, thanks for that. Now. Uh, when we talk about historical materialism, uh, this is uh, broadly speaking uh, Marxist tradition, and the emphasis is on the uh, the dominant modes of production in uh, in a given society, and how this helps us explain historical movements, figures, movements, groups, etc., etc. Uh, so it's it, it's it's in, in very broad terms, it's one way to uh, avoid anachronism and understand um, historical actors in their historical context. More precisely, though, it's to do with class relations and how class relations and uh, and class conflict are, are a driver of historical change. Now, if you can do this with a big picture, you have to you bring in all sorts of things to do with uh, uh, class relations, including technological developments and things like this, how things change over the long run, over centuries. Uh, and how societies will shift from ancient modes of production, from slave modes of production, through, uh, tributary modes of production, and so on in the ancient world, through feudal societies, then on to capitalism, and so on. We're obviously on a very small part of human history here in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. So we focus on the ways in which uh, the the economic relations that was best we can understand them in Galilee around the time of Jesus. Um, We might come back to this more in in due course, but for instance, how elites in urban centers extract surplus and resources from the countryside uh, and how changes in uh, those kinds of relationships. And for instance, the building of new urban centers helps explain reactions against these uh, projects, whether they're supportive, whether they're hostile, whether they're indifferent, whether they, Whatever, opportunistic, and so on. Now, as a scholarly tradition, it's got a—it's um, it's curiously got both a long and uh, distinguished history outside biblical studies, and a largely not I wouldn't say non-existent history in biblical studies, but a very low-key history in biblical studies. So, I mean, you could trace it back to Marx, Engels, and so on in the in the 19th century as uh, as a sort of full-blown tradition in the study of history. I mean, I would emphasize, and I think Robert would probably agree, but he can come in on this, the importance of the British Marxist historians of the mid-20th century. Now, this gets associated with people like Eric Hobsbawm, uh, Christopher Hill, E.P. Thompson, uh, Donna Torr, Dorothy Thompson, and, and figures like this who uh, uh, who try to explain, particularly but not exclusively, uh, in the case of Hobsbawm, at least, the development of uh, from feudalism to capitalism in English and British society, uh, and what uh, uh, I mean—they're the ones who get all the claim, uh, the the acclaim for developing these kind of approaches to to history. I would add um, A. L. Morton, another uh, English Marxist historian who's been largely overlooked, but uh, he was very important in developing ideas of millenarianism. And apocalypticism as part of the historical materialist process about how the how these pre-modern ideas get taken up and developed and uh, redirected, um, with the emergence of capitalism. But so we're very interested in the pre-modern. Uh, uses of millenarianism in relation to economic modes of production, and particularly the ways in which they were developed by people like Morton and uh, Hobsbawm and Hill and people like that. But it's it's now become. So, I mean, the outside biblical studies, it's a there's a long distinguished history, as I said. In biblical studies, well, I mean, you could go back to Engels and Kautsky, who did work on Christian origins uh, in in relation to historical materialist explanations. Uh, a lot of it is absent in the history of our field, um, and I think it's for some fairly obvious reasons, the Cold War being one of them. And particularly, I mean, you could say, well, why doesn't it emerge in why Why did it take off and flourish in other fields? Well, I think the reason is is not is the Cold War plus theology and the historic locations of um, biblical studies in theology departments and faculties, which uh, it, which meant that. The perception was, and, and this this can be documented pretty clearly and uh, extensively, that Marxism, social sciences, anything like this smacked of atheism and therefore uh, uh, was avoided like the plague in, in biblical studies really up until the 1970s. And even then, I think Marxist stuff was on the fringes of biblical studies, not really taken on board. And when it was taken on board in the 70s, 80s and 90s, I think it with some honourable exceptions, it's largely softened. So you do get uh, people applying these models of class conflict. Uh, I think you often they result in a sort of romantic view of the historical Jesus and Christian origins as you know the, the, these, these sort of nice communal uh, groups who uh, uh, broke down gender barriers and all this kind of thing, um, which I think would be anachronistic. Where instead, we want to use this historical materialist approach to explain why a movement emerged when and where it did, and why it survived, why it continued, uh, and things like this.
1: Yeah, I think um, I, I can add a few things to that. Just um, uh, one one idea that sort of ties in with this is the the great man view of history, and um, particularly in in uh, historical Jesus research, the um, the dominant mode has tended to be. Um, romanticizing Jesus as this great man of history who kind of came up with innovative ideas and through his individual actions changed history all by himself. And, um, it's a sort of an old critique of, of, of the history from below, a different form of, of, of doing history that would see, um, changes, uh, and the rise and fall of different movements and so on as, um, much more linked to um, people being products of the social forces of their day, the social and material forces of their day. So um, in terms of historical Jesus research, um, and I'm speaking very broad brush, uh, um, generalizing here, but the dominant way in which this kind of research has been done has been to, as James was saying, both romanticize Jesus, but I think also to focus much more on the ideas as kind of, or, you know, like the different, um, let's say types of Jewish thought or, uh, intellectual currents or whatever that were going on at the time and to, um, pay less, uh, attention to material forces as the early Jesus movement may have been, uh, reacting to or developing their ideas in reaction against some of these, um, socioeconomic changes. Um, so really our task is to try and bring those two things together. How did the kind of the intellect, uh, sorry, the ideological texture of the early Jesus movement um, intersect with, relate? How how was it also a product of uh, its underlying material situation?
2: Very nice. Uh, wonderful, both of you. Um, <clears throat> I will say uh, for people who are potentially interested in reading the book, I didn't feel like um, I was very I, I didn't feel like i was hit over the head with historical materialism as, as if uh, you know this but this is something that must be uh, fully accepted and and understood before you can jump into uh the historical jesus that is uh, uh um it's very much trying to interpret what is going on in uh, in jesus's lifetime that uh, um drives him to uh, millenarian uh tendencies perhaps and uh, they say early on in on page 2 of the book that um, materialist criticism doesn't turn jesus into a modern socialist and you know he, it, this this method of analysis doesn't turn him into a marxist figure uh, instead this is just an, a uh, a way of applying a scholarly tradition to a uh, um, a study that hasn't not traditionally um, uh, accepted it as one of the uh, traditional criticisms that is brought into uh, historical Jesus studies. Um, James and Robert, as we continue in this first half of uh, this uh, interview, I do have a handful of sort of thematic questions that would allow listeners who may not uh, know all the ins and outs of historical Jesus scholarship to get up to speed on the discussions at hand. And then we'll later, we'll turn to questions that arose for me uh, from reading the major chapters of the book. So for example, a Both of you are scholars of religion who do uh, interdisciplinary work, and I'm curious about the kinds of audiences that you wrote this book for. Um, You don't go too overboard with uh, footnotes or endnotes, and at times it seems like you are also trying to bring the historical Jesus work to other scholars of Marxism or historical materialism, but I also think it goes beyond that, so you might be writing for multiple publics. Uh, What motivated you to write a book of this kind, and how do you see it being used or useful to audiences?
0: Yeah, I could, uh, again, I'll uh, I'll start on that one Um, and go back a bit. I mean, I've been working on historical Jesus, I guess, in some form or other for the past, I don't know, uh, 20 plus years, uh, something like this. Um, And honestly, it's started to wind me up a lot. Uh, uh, I, I, I felt very frustrated with the way the field's gone. I felt very frustrated with uh the 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 questions constantly being ignored even when they were put forward i get very frustrated with a lot of the repetition constant repetition of the same old questions it's not to say that they're wrong questions it's not to say some of the answers are wrong it's just that do we constantly have to be having the same debate decade after decade after decade hmm. so there was uh, a little a little bit a little bit of frustration which crept in on that i i, I also wanted to bring together kind of uh for me anyway robert will have his own motivations obviously i wanted to bring together stuff i'd done over these past 20 odd years into a sort of coherent life of jesus book i mean i've got interests elsewhere but i felt to quote samuel beckett that my i needed to leave my stain on the subfield before um uh doing other things and i thought and i also thought that that, I mean, I, as I probably implied with the, in my answer to the previous question, that uh, you know, I've got a lot of interest in what happened with the British Marxist historians, and I saw that there, the this was a huge gap in uh, in on socialist Marxist left wing kind of readings of history. I thought were pretty were, were either absent or not always that well done at all when it comes to religion and Jesus. And in fact, on, I think on the contemporary left, the um, there really is in western left and i very really do not know what to do with religion and it usually means ignoring it uh or disparaging it or, uh, or overly embracing it or whatever i just think i th- thought i want to want to do something that was serious historical uh and treated it like any other kind of subject uh in, in that sense so those are the kind of driving factors for me to write it the the audience is is uh, <laughs> I'm tr- I th- again, Robert will have his own uh, uh, interesting explanations here, but I could speak for myself. Here is I wanted it to try and cross the standard historical Jesus audiences in uh, that I'm 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 used to, we're used to, and a wider audience of interested leftist socialists. And if we could pick up any wider popular audience, great. Um, but you know. I, these are things that end up going down to chance and so on. But really those two audiences, I would be quite happy to uh, have engaged with this kind of book. And um, the the lack of footnotes is, is sort of on purpose because you, you imagine if you're coming at this as a relative outsider and you filled out those footnotes on the historical Jesus, they it would be twice the size in footnotes alone. Uh, and again, it would be just uh, what would be the point? It'd be repetition after repetition after repetition, go and read a dictionary uh, entries on the historical Jesus or something like this or there's a decent biography essay come out in the journal for the study of historical jesus if you want that um uh, and and i just thought well, let's just bypass this and write a life of jesus and do it and then you can disagree with it let's try to start something a little bit new and push forward from there and then and and hopefully uh there's some signs that 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 might happen um so I, i'm trying to cross those kind of different audiences for this i actually i think that one of the other things is i, I i've been finding it's pick been picked up a little bit among religious studies types as well because i think they can engage with this critically like uh, i mean i don't know quite where to locate you in a way rob you're on the sort of fringes of what we call biblical studies but also in religious studies so you're kind of nice hinge between those two kind of groups but uh, it, i find it's, it's been quite easy to have like discussions and things like that online discussions things with people uh, it, it, more at home in religious studies as well because uh, they are interested but probably not that interested in reading a 500 page book you know, going through uh, every little minutiae of detail. So those are those are some of the sort of motivating factors for me, but um, Robert will have his own reasons for doing this.
1: Yeah, I just want to add a, a few things to that. Um, definitely, I, I think that, you know, we wrote this as a book to be read uh, by a broad audience, um, but that doesn't mean that we don't think it will stack up or make a significant contribution uh, within the field as well. And we've we've um, we've built the argument or put forward the book in a way that we think it it's part of the the kind of the avant-garde of what's being called the next quest for the historical Jesus. So um, within historical Jesus research, there's often a lot of discussion about various quests, and um, in some ways, you know, it, it, this is, this has been quite limiting um, way of talking about historical Jesus research because it sort of suggests an idea of progress or what have you, but actually it seems to us that um, the uh, historical Jesus research has in many ways got, um, uh, is is kind of stalled um, within its own kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> ideas about directions and so on. The, the next quest that we're really uh, situating the book in is about um, taking some of the... Uh, uh, questions and ideas that are being explored or have been explored, uh, within other disciplines within the humanities and bringing them into historical Jesus research. And this, a lot of this work has been, um, around for decades within historical Jesus research, but it hasn't been at the center because, um, so I'm talking about like, uh, ideas to do with gender, class conflict, um, Uh, ethnicity, uh, questions that are being asked and explored uh, uh, in other disciplines have been explored in historical Jesus research, but are always put on the margins because of this kind of uh, dominant quest agenda, which is focused on, uh, at least in the previous quest, um, criteria of authenticity, uh, a kind of um, flawed uh, uh, or overstated um, uh, idea that we can actually go back to establishing with kind of empirical certitude or near empirical certitude, what Jesus actually said and did that kind of stuff. The next quest as it's being talked about at the moment. Um, it wants to take a much broader perspective on these things. So we very much see this book as making a contribution within the discipline, uh, to that. Um, but also that, yes, you're, you're right. And James has, has, um, talked about this, that as well, that, uh, there are, many people who are interested in these sorts of questions who don't actually reside in the, in the discipline of biblical studies or even, you know, they're not even academics within religion and so on. Um, and so we wrote the book for them as well.
0: Can I, can I just come back in on that, Rob? Is that all right? Of course. Go right yeah, ahead. Um, um, just to, to push this further. Um, I think there's a couple of things happening um, that demographically really that have, uh, have sort of, enabling a bit of a shift in the in the subfield of historical Jesus studies one is I mean to put it quite bluntly there's an older generation who are just dying off getting old and things like that but they've been quite dominant for decades really um and uh, we're starting to see a gap where well, I say younger scholars I mean <laughs> people who are 50 odd are now uh filling that uh, that kind of gap and so on but also some uh, younger ones as well um and um, and I think this is, I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think about this yourself, Rob, is I think at places like the Society of Biblical Literature, uh, for instance, there has been a real shift over the past 10, 15 years about who's dominating sessions and things like this. It's no longer dominated by evangelical uh, figures and chairs and things like this. It's against it's a younger generation asking different questions, uh, right, wrong indifferent doesn't really matter something has shifted and i guess you we could tie this in with various factors, including things like the rise of the so-called nones in america where they they, in shifting the questions so we, we we've stepped in with uh this book but also a bigger project um involving robert uh and several other many others 34 others i think or was it 30 and doesn't matter around that uh, are on the next quest for the historical jesus where we are pushing this idea that um okay some of the old questions are fine but we need to start talking about things like slavery and enslavement we need to start talking about how do we we could talk about something like the resurrection why not as one one contributor has done compare this with uh, reports of and stories and discussions and ideas about people claiming about resurrections in 17th century england for instance or how uh, how do we compare Apocalypse and millenarianism in peasant societies, how would that uh, help us understand something going on in the in the gospel tradition? And so on. We've done this with all sorts of different themes and topics and tried to take a comparative approach uh, uh, and, and push things in all sorts of uh, new directions. And, and so hopefully this book uh, and what will come over the next few years will start to shift the questions away from some of the repetitive questions and and help us ask more and get some more discussion going over the next decade or so.
2: I suppose I've I've ever so slightly lost sight of uh, where where historical Jesus scholarship is these days. Uh, Robert brought up the idea of uh, different quests going on, and that's one of the terms that uh, I think will always be a part of this uh, uh, tradition of research, of historical Jesus research. And is there a quest going on? Uh, In the uh, kind of things that I'm hearing, I I see Johannine scholars trying to uh, make the quest about uh, the Gospel of John and bringing that back into uh, the historical Jesus tradition yeah and, that's, uh, a,
0: that's that's an interesting debate. I, mean, I think um that's it, it, that's I think it's sort of a last hurrah of the sort of the uh, older question in a way is like, let's do something new. Let's bring John's gospel in. I mean, it's been done before, but and people are calling it the fourth quest, which I think is completely misguided, not just for. Uh, my own self interest, but, uh, it, uh, but I think the idea that first, second, no quest, um, third quest are, are all really dubious terms. And we've used the phrase next quest to slightly troll them and slightly, uh, to say, you know, to uh, go, go beyond all that and say, just doing something, uh, something new on this. But the, I think the, the whole the question, of I mean, this is not to disparage the, the discussion about the question of John's gospel, but to think there's a whole fourth quest, which is taking John's gospel more seriously, is wishful thinking in, in my view
2: and that everyone you know that has come before has just missed all this uh, valid information that yeah, is, is that in the, in the is the always gospel been there uh, you know i was just wondering are we really doing this you know uh, uh, using the gospel of john but speaking of that broader tradition of historical jesus research um, i found in reading your book at times that uh, the historical materialist critique uh, kind of recedes and uh, allows you to bring what is more traditional discussions of sources uh, elaborations in the synoptic tradition and so on to take center stage so uh, for our listeners who are perhaps uh, unsure about uh, historical Jesus scholarship and the traditional way that uh, that we deal with the Gospels as sources for reconstructing the earliest Jesus movement. Do you want to say anything about how you evaluate the biblical evidence and why, for example, uh, the Gospel we know as Mark is almost universally preferred to John?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh- this is one that we we obviously had to include something on sources. One person said to me uh, when I was embarking on this book, "Please don't do several chapters of preamble talking about your synoptic problem and things like that. No one wants to hear it." And I kind of get that, uh, but at the same time, we have got a wider audience as well who are not that familiar. So we had to do something about the sources we're using, rather than simply launch into it. So, but I mean, we we've taken a fairly conventional traditional approach to this. And, and I still think he's broadly right, but I'll add a qualification at the end of that, where it's, I think it's gone wrong. And that's, we, we, first of all, we don't really, well, we use bits of John where, where perhaps appropriate, but John, we certainly sideline, as you say. And I think uh, the history scholarship has been right to sideline John to, you know, greater degree because, john has got stories such as you know the trigger for the death of jesus for instance is the raising of lazarus from the very dead uh this uh mark's gospel for instance has the trigger the uh the actions in the temple at passover now without saying whether mark's historically accurate or not at least we could say mark has got a stronger case for being uh for being more historically plausible than um than the miraculous and there's other things. So, for instance, John's gospel has this has the uh, this elevated view of Jesus that is not there in the synoptic tradition. So, in John five and John ten, there is this idea of equating Jesus with God, which, according to John, uh, has the Jewish opponents, generalised as the Jews, or if you prefer Judeans, I don't think that's a reasonable translation, but I know others do, wanting to kill Jesus for it. None of that is there in the synoptic tradition about that. Uh, uh, the conflicts are over things like legal interpretation and, and, uh, and actions in the temple. So again, if there was such high, high Christological uh, conflict earlier on in the tradition, why, why, why isn't it mentioned in Matthew, Mark, or Luke? So there, there are some of the reasons, and, and there are others as well, about why uh, we're a bit skeptical about the use of John's gospel. And, that, and I think they're fairly typical Explanations about what about the problems with John's Gospel, but that doesn't, of course, make uh Mark or other sources necessarily windows into the historical Jesus. So we we do use Mark for the for the obvious reasons that it's the I mean here, very few would ever dispute that Mark was the first gospel first source. Uh, we also take a sort of view that uh, of Q, i.e., that Matthew and Luke have a common source. Uh, which scholars have labeled Q, and some in and, and the debates over to the extent to which this is a written source, or was this is this a shorthand for a collection of sources and things like that? But I wouldn't even rule out the possibility that Luke used Matthew as well as so we I think uh, as well as Q, so we can use those kinds of sources. But then this is where the qualification comes in. I think a lot of the uh, the, the history of historical Jesus scholarship over the past few decades have come up with a set of criteria. And they've said things like, if something is multiply attested in sources and forms, it's got a good chance of going back to the historical Jesus. So if something is in, uh, say, a topic or whatever is in Mark Q uh, and in parables and in pronouncement stories or conflict stories or whatever, therefore you've got a cluster of uh, seemingly independent uh, idea, independently attested ideas, therefore there's a chance it goes back to Jesus, which is kind of Okay, you could you can make the case that I think that that points to an earlier theme uh, or idea or whatever, but miracles would therefore be cast as going back to historical Jesus. So it's not proof. I mean, you, if you could prove miracles, then you know, good luck to you. But um, but the, but in other words, it takes you back to an early tradition. Some of the other stuff, like if something's embarrassing, it goes back. It's likely to go back to the historical Jesus. Well, it, it, embarrassment's in the eye of the beholder, in a way, because something is embarrassing to Matthew, such as Jesus' return to uh, Nazareth looks that way. It doesn't seem to be embarrassing for Mark. I mean, you could flip the argument a little bit and say, Mark has no problem saying Jesus could do no deeds of power when he went back home. Uh, why would he invent that? Okay. I can, I can see that argument, but, uh, um, but, but, it, but things like embarrassment are, are embarrassing for one gospel writer, but not necessarily for another. So they all have, they have different themes and things like this. Um, there's bits and pieces you could probably do with Aramaic. I think I think you can do with Aramaic as uh, as pre-Gospel sources. Um, but again, it's very complicated because Aramaic speakers continued, obviously, after the death of Jesus, so they could be involved in the creative rewriting of tradition and influencing things and so on. But you can get perhaps get bits and pieces which can be explained by an earlier Aramaic source. I, 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 I buy some of those arguments, but they're only bits and pieces. Um, So you can't, I don't think, I think we're very limited in what we can do with these sources in terms of precise reconstruction and and think, right? I mean, where was Mark's gospel written? Well, one group of scholars think it's Galilee, Syria. Another group of scholars think it's Rome. They're miles away from each other, right? Uh, so already you've got that massive problem, uh, and and uh, I mean, even if you went for an early dating of Mark like I do, if you went for a conventional dating of Mark, uh, like other, you're still talking years, decades, and whatever of this material. And how long does it take to start writing, thinking creatively about your tradition? What weeks, years? Well, yes, certainly, I think. um So I, we've got all sorts of problems, and we haven't, we simply haven't got that sort of hard eyewitness testimony contrary to some scholars uh, uh we haven't got that sort of masses of independent evidence there and then we so i think the best we can do and i don't think this is actually a bad thing is work with generalities if we can say there is a theme that is likely to be uh, pervasive or present in galilee judea 20s 30s or something like this then uh then we might be onto something um, uh, and, and so I th- that's why we work more precisely with what are the sort of early themes that are most likely to be associated with the historical Jesus without making the hard claims that we can prove that Jesus said or did this or that uh, in some cases that we can even disprove it or, or something like that. So I think we have to work in general terms. We can use some of the old criteria, but very, very carefully with heavy qualification and not as some kind of uh, precise tool to drill back.
2: Yeah, I appreciated that I didn't see much talk of criteria uh, um, uh, in all that. And Robert, you can respond to the question as you'd like, if you will. But um, uh, I might also ask, in under the idea of using generalities for the time period, uh, could you say something also about your use of Josephus?
1: Yeah, I'll leave the um, the question about Josephus to James, who can speak on that in a moment. But just, just to take it back to uh, talk about... Um, uh, the way in which we yeah configure our sources use our sources to try and reconstruct the early jesus movement and we're quite deliberate in that we talk about reconstructing the early jesus movement so james has already talked a little bit about how we're we're not so much focused on establishing you know with with um certainty or near certainty the exact precise things that the individual person of jesus said or did uh, or anything like that. We're more looking for separating earlier themes and traditions from later ones. Um, we're really trying to get back to the earliest um, ideas that were associated with this with this figure of Jesus, and importantly, the early Jesus movement. Uh, why I broaden that out to the early Jesus movement, or why we do that, um, really has to, to go back to this um, critique of the great man view of history. And too much historical Jesus research has focused on Jesus as the single-handed kind of great man. Um, uh, and I think that that um, what that ends up doing is uh, downplaying the fact that he was actually part of a, a broader uh, social and religious movement um, where these ideas may have been uh, generated collectively. Um, people were responding to... Uh, the material conditions and, and social forces of the wider environment uh, in ways that um, uh, it wasn't just about how one individual <laughs> responded to these things. It's how a movement of people uh, formed in response to them. So I think that's really important in terms of how we we use our sources to try and get back to um, uh, what we might call the earliest uh, Palestinian tradition and the early Jesus movement, which was reacting against it.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of things you can say about Josephus. One is, um, as a precise source for the historical Jesus, um, I think beyond limited, I don't think he tells us anything really. Now, you might come back and say, well, doesn't he have this passage about Jesus? And some may say it's been uh, modified, added, uh, whatever, whatever the extent, even if let's just assume for argument's sake that Josephus did write that passage about Jesus, I, I would still say, so what? Um, this is towards the end of the first century. Uh, everybody, uh, at this point, people, some people knew a figure called Jesus was understood to live done in certain deeds and so on. So Josephus just provides a summary really. Uh, and so I think there's uh, an, and, and it's an interesting summary, but there's, there's only, there's not much you can, you couldn't write a biography from it uh, and you can't have much to it at all. So I'm, 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 I'm not too bothered about using Josephus or any of the, uh, other, um, I'm going to use non-Christian, but you, you know what I mean by that, non-Christian sources. Because um, it's the same thing. They're all based on the idea that they know this movement exists and had a founder figure and so on. Josephus is obviously very useful, though, when it comes to uh, context. Now, again, as with historical Jesus, we know that we, we've we got to be very skeptical with to the extent which Josephus knew precise details and things like this. Of course we do. Uh, but, it, but what I think, uh, what I would say to that is that we Josephus is extremely helpful in how someone familiar and and was active in that part of the world understood figures like bandits, millenarian millenarian figures, prophets, and so on, um, uh, and uh, you know he will give us some useful, very useful uh, uh, factual details and here and there that are undisputed, like that this town was built then and this ruler ruled then. Um, but I think his, the way he could sort of constructed the social world is very important. We don't have to get bogged down in questions Is did this prophetic leader say this exactly? Uh, did this millenarian figure do that or the other, but what we have got is that this is, this is a way in which millenarian figures and prophets were constructed. It could, often, in the case of Josephus often negatively, but you can read against the grain. You can uh, see, uh, is he implying these are popular? Is he implying that they're not, is he trying to hide something? So you can, use, you can use Josephus like that. And as a source like that, obviously, we've got loads of uh, information and material we can use but as part of the kind of, want of a better phrase, symbolic world uh, of Galilee and Judea at the time uh, Jesus was growing up. So I think Josephus is useful like that. And I don't, I don't think we have to get too heavily bogged down in details of did it happen, did it not. Uh, and what's just, I mean, Obviously, Josephus' agenda is important to read against it and all that kind of thing. But he remains very, very important in that sense. And I think we'd be, we would be limited. We would, we would, it would be a big loss if we didn't have Josephus uh, to help us understand uh, the context of uh, trying of Jesus and first followers.
2: Yeah. I got the sense that Josephus was a very important source for uh, understanding the environment of the uh, first century around the time when, when Jesus lived. Um, and uh, as you quite rightly say, James, uh, whether or not that, uh, uh, very short biography of Jesus in Josephus uh, it, it goes back or is, is valid in any way. Uh, um, uh, I wasn't necessarily pointing to that, but uh, the environmental influences uh, of uh, the, the environment that uh, or the picture that Josephus paints of the first century uh, I, I sense was very important to you both. Um, uh, let's move on a little bit and say that, um, uh, as uh, Robert has alluded to, this idea of a great man approach to history, uh, I, I noticed that you were critical of. Modern scholars or scholars of a previous generation, perhaps, who partake in what you call a bourgeois history uh, of ancient phenomena like the Jesus movement, uh, claiming, for example, that they underplay class conflict, they liberalize Jesus into sort of a modern thinker and overemphasize Jesus as a great man, as the... uh, 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 a very unique figure who had unique ideas for the time and, uh, uh, and people just didn't understand him at this time. Um, So uh, can you give an example or two of this bourgeois historical Jesus scholarship that you've encountered before and why you think it's so misguided or anachronistic for the task at hand?
0: Yeah. I know, I know Robert's got a few of his favorites here to get stuck into. So I'll try not to step on his toes too much on that one, but uh, um, I mean, There's some there's some interesting just turns of phrases. For instance, Um, you know there isn't time here to examine the economic context of historical Jesus. I mean, you imagine like you're writing a history, (laughs) make time. Um, But I I think, but the fact that you can get away with that um, uh, speaks volumes. I think I would say, I mean, you look at all the major works of on the historical Jesus. They are intensely focused on the individual. Uh, and I include people who, who do social scientific criticism here, their intent, their intensity social on the individual, the ideas about, and how these ideas give birth to a movement, where are the continuities and discontinuities, all important questions granted, but it, this is the causal factor effectively. Uh, it's not supernatural necessarily with the exceptions of someone like, right, I guess, but it's, it's, it's the individual that does it. Um, so there's lots of that. There's lots. Uh, and and, even in the case of, I mean, Crossan wrote some very interesting stuff on historical Jesus. I think, um, I think some of the interpretations he got were wrong. But the discussion, I mean, he did discuss discuss the kind of economic reasons that gave rise to this movement. But then the the focus in discussion was not on that. Uh, whether this is Crossan's fault or not doesn't really matter. It was on his use of sources. His Jesus was a bit liberal. His Jesus was like this. He couldn't have been like that, uh, and so on. It was never the kind of uh, social. Uh, Social economic questions that were were raised from it. And Crossan's Jesus is kind of a modern liberal figure in in, in fairly obvious ways, I, I, I think, uh, So it would be a, a sort of liberal bourgeois example of it. Um, the other thing is, it's is not just the great man, it's not just the uniqueness, it's a sort of qualified uniqueness that comes through now. The uh, past, past 30, 40 years have seen scholarship much more aware of the history of anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism in scholarship. So it's sought to qualify that for ob- uh, honorable reasons to some extent. But what's happened is, is it's just retained the old individuality and uniqueness through um, phrases like, uh, you know, he was very, very Jewish, very Jewish, uh, but he's a bit different. Uh, his way is different. He transcends Judaism, intensifies Judaism, uh, things like this. So it's 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 gone from different from Judaism to very Jewish, but a bit but sort of different as well. I mean, the phrase I liked on this is Jewish but not that Jewish that comes through in a lot of uh, scholarship, and it is absolutely pervasive uh, in well, not in Jewish scholarship for obvious reasons, but certainly in uh, non-Jewish scholarship on on the historical Jesus, uh, and and I think this is a part of um, the modern multicultural dilemma is of a sort of liberal embrace of the other uh but not you can't do the full embrace of the other because the cultures are seen to be too different too wild so you it's you run it has a sort of oriental romanticizing about these about figures whether this is in the present uh when dealing with other cultures or in the past when we're doing the historical jesus he's a yes he he's he's jewish it's lovely it's wonderful but here's where he's different on the weird things things perceived to be weird purity or sabbath observance, or, or something like this it's always these little difference makers that scholars keep bringing in rather than simply saying you know jews might believe different things and there's no uh and have different nuances and different emphases and uh and some might have not thought this was unusual some might uh and how and how identity functions so i think uh the dominant mode of expression that sort of jewish but not that jewish is a classic uh liberal bourgeois expression uh, uh that could be tied in with Our present moment and things like that i know robert's got some great examples of um of of precise bourgeois examples of bourgeois scholarship i think and i'll hand over to him uh on those
1: yeah i think just just to add a bit to that and um to maybe provide some some concrete examples as well um you know historical jesus scholarship is itself this this product of um of bourgeois society, you know, when it got going, it was very much concerned with uh, uh, presenting Jesus as this, this great man individual. Um, and it drew on and kind of fed into concepts of, of the bourgeois individual as the, what might be called the, the homo economicus, the kind of, you know, the economic individual unit, um, of society, uh, around which the entire kind of world, um, Revolves, and historical Jesus scholars, modern historical Jesus scholars, often just naively or, or unthinkingly um, adopt uh, this. But they also will read in to some of the ancient material modern Western capitalist concepts, which don't quite fit. Um, so one uh, word that that comes up uh, occasionally is, or one kind of concept that comes up occasionally is this tendency to describe. Uh, some of the people involved in the early Jesus movement as entrepreneurs. Um, this often comes up in terms of the the, the fishing uh, industry in um, on the Sea of Galilee, and we know that some of Jesus's prominent uh, inner circle were were members of small fishing collectives, um, who in fact you know are portrayed in the gospel material as as abandoning or giving up um, uh, uh, these. Um, their 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 livelihoods in some respect, or at least, you know, uh uh not kind of, you know, they, they get up and leave their nets, all that um talk of abandonment, um, to to join Jesus's uh, apocalyptic movement. Um <clears throat> and sometimes the language that's used by scholars is that this was a, a kind, you know they did it for spiritual reasons. They they um they were looking for something more the 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 Fishing business that they were involved in was actually quite lucrative. Sometimes you get the language of them being middle class or what have you, and um, uh, uh, which is completely anachronistic. Um, uh, and um, and so you know, non-material reasons for their joining the Jesus movement are uh, just assumed to be the case—religious reasons or whatever people want to call them. Um, our viewers to much more hold the material conditions that they were a part of uh, in connection to, you know, their actions, their um, perceptions of what was going around, what ideas and, and themes um, such as the apocalyptic themes of the early Jesus movement might or might not have been attractive to them, that sort of thing. And one of the, in the case of the fishing industry, it's it's really important to situate um, this whole uh, uh uh, phenomenon within some of the building projects that were going on in uh, first century Galilee as Jesus and members of the early Jesus movement were were growing up. So on the uh, lake front of uh, the Sea of Galilee um, was a major city, urban area called Tiberias, named in um, response, uh, sorry, in um, homage to the Roman emperor at the time, just kind of un- underpinning the, the Roman power that lay behind the local aristocratic powers. Um, so this city was founded in 19 CE. So pretty shortly before, you know, a couple of years before uh, the early Jesus movement really start organizing their m- millenarian response Um uh, to the, this, these material upheavals, and this building project um, at Tiberius uh, 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 had some significant effects in terms of um, uh, displacing uh, uh, peasants or, or, or fishermen who lived in the areas uh, from um, from their lands to make way for some of the, the changes, but also um, pr- made a kind of hu- uh, provided a huge imposition put a huge imposition on smaller collectives, fishing families and so on, who would have been dotted around the lake, mostly associated with small villages like Capernaum or Bethsaida or what have you. Uh, Simply put, better connected elites would now be able to dominate the lake economy and um, the, the the building of cities like Tiberius and and uh, Sepphoris, which was another city which was uh, massively refurbished uh, a couple of decades earlier, and was only six kilometers from uh, the small village of Nazareth, these put massive strains, economic and social strains, on the uh, on the uh, peasants and and people living within the countryside and the kind of more rural village uh, communities around the place. Um, And it was all part of this grander project to um, uh, incorporate this region, this area into the wider Roman imperial economy. So it really was all about the concentration of wealth and power and uh, the extraction of uh, resources um, for the benefit of elites. Now, you know, people don't generally, um, uh, or at least not all the time, you know, religious ideas don't just come from other ideas, or they're not generated by other ideas. Rather, people respond, whether consciously or not, to um, their own material context, the concrete realities that are going on around them. And sometimes the responses can be quite contradictory or unexpected. People might um, act in ways that maybe go against their interests. Um, so something to add to all of this is that in the the, the conversation about um, the economic situation in Galilee, uh, there's been um, a lot of talk and scholarship, uh, which we think has, has been quite romanticized. Um, it tends to take the, the perspective of the elite at the time. So elite writers like Josephus, aristocratic writers like Josephus, who tended to downplay uh, some of the upheavals that would have would have possibly happened at the time the discontent or perceived perceptions of of um, uh, discontent um, that were being generated by these changes um, uh, and of course some of the, the the pushback against this idea of a you know ridiculously downtrodden Galilee which you know we we think yes the material evidence points to a rather complex economic situation where some people among the peasantry would have certainly um, had a lot of opportunities and perhaps even experienced a modest increase in their their livelihoods and so on. But um, others uh, would have certainly luck- uh, missed out on this. And um, the point for us is that the changes that were happening, um, no matter whether it was, was uh, kind of, you know, on an individual level, um, some people would have experienced these as good things or bad things. The point is, is that the world was changing and the wider uh, population in Galilee, the Jewish population in Galilee, many of whom had lived for generations in traditional um, rural lifestyles, so as small fishermen from father to son, father to son and so on, sustaining a kind of modest subsistence way of life, suddenly that was all being overturned. And so people, it seems to us, or um, a likely explanation is that people were gravitating towards uh, uh, attractive um, ideas, themes that were prevalent within the Jewish tradition at the time, such as apocalyptic thoughts about God dramatically intervening and, and um, you know, restoring a kind of golden age. Um, we can see how some of these ideas might have been quite attractive for them. Is that good? I was just kind of
2: <laughs> circling around, but wonderful, both of you once again. And I also wonder if uh, uh, the tendency to liberalize Jesus is for some scholars, like Crossan or whomever, uh, them wanting to put forth a Jesus that they can still believe in—a Jesus that uh, kind of represents them in some in some ways. And therefore, I think uh, uh, transitioning to our next point about uh, revolutionary revolutionary millenarianism is an important point to put forward, because I don't think we have uh, a ton in the scholarship of revolutionary millenarians these days uh, uh, in, you know, departments of theological and religious studies. Uh, So therefore, that's kind of a disconnect between Jesus and our day. So you were preaching to the choir when you uh, brought this up and um, uh, framed the Jesus movement as an instance of this millenarianism, uh, by which you understand uh, it as a direct challenge to Roman rule, to the Herodian client state in Judea, and we could expand that to Galilee if we'd like. And you also see Jesus's party, as you uh, frame it, uh, expecting to be installed imminently by a divine theocratic intervention in history, Uh, and they'll be representatives of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Some interpreters, of course, don't see Jesus as quite the Jewish apocalypticist or political actor. As uh, as you do, though, uh, so I wanted to ask: uh, How and why do you come to these conclusions that Jesus and his party, uh, uh, and you may say more about party there, if, if you'd like, uh, are best understood as these revolutionary millenarians? And how does your analysis of class conflict in his life instigate you to see him uh, driven toward this particular end?
0: Well, the I think the I think the argument that Jesus, the basic argument, I know people quibble and argue over nuance and so on and so forth the basic argument that jesus uh, the earliest movement or the earliest ideas traditions in jesus name uh, had a strong apocalyptic or millenarian element uh, is i think very strong. The argument and, and the reasons are this um if we look at the development of the first century what happens um paul is clearly expecting something dramatic a dramatic intervention in human history.
2: You say clearly, but there are Pauline scholars who don't follow that. But uh, but I'm with you. I'm well, with- I mean,
0: <laughs> I still got to the one Thessalonians four and five. Um, right. I mean, you know, you got. <laughs> I mean, there is an expectation, and all right, then if Paul doesn't, his audience do, uh, um, and uh, the, the so. One Thessalonians, so it's a mid first century. There are expectations, and it, and there's concerns now that people are dying and the end times haven't come. So, uh, that's what I would throw back <laughs> at those Pauline scholars. Um, to uh, uh well, you know, obviously these things depend on date, but if we go once end of the first century into the second century, let's take um, oh, let's go to the probably the furthest end 2 Peter 3 there's uh people mocking uh, about the the that these things haven't taken place and so on and so you know the explanation is one day is like a thousand to the Lord why you know so it, it bats it off but there's clearly having to deal with the problem that has been a history of uh predictions about the great transformation John's gospel has to tack this thing on the end of John's gospel about um well you know if, if, if the beloved disciple if, if it's up to me if I came back in time or not or something you know I wouldn't say I would my kind of logic to it. Um, and John's gospel is very interesting. What does John's gospel not have almost no kingdom sayings, which is in stark contrast to the gospels. And another reason why I, I have problems with John's gospel being used for historical Jesus studies gets rid of the kingdom sayings about, uh, predictions of the imminent kingdom and has two kingdom sayings in John three, which are about being born again or from above. Um, now, why has John got rid of all those predictions of an imminent end? Why has he projected the end to be sometime in distant future? Why has he got the this addition in John 21? Presumably because um, there's been a very strong tradition of predicting great transformation in this movement. So I think you can map that out like that. Uh, and the explanation being the earliest material is probably, the, uh, the earliest material probably did predict a great transformation. Uh also look at some of the some of the predictions are are not even qualified at time mark nine one looks very much like they're expecting the kingdom uh, to come within the lifetimes of of hearers Matthew intensifies it um so it's there and I think uh, the best explanation is is those those unqualified predictions are among the earlier ones or perhaps intensified in light of the uh, uh, Jewish war um and I mean, what we do with St. Matthew, we've got in Mark nine one, it is a prediction about the coming of the kingdom. The Matthian version is about the Son of Man, uh, the Son of Man returning in His kingdom. So we can see a development of the and heightening uh, of it there. So that that would be the explanation um, uh, I would use to uh, is, is the most important one. And you know, there there is quite clear emphasis in Mark's gospel, at least, uh, and and others. Uh, of this Im, Im, imminent expectation of the kingdom. Now, that's not to say that eschatological ideas and millenarian ideas don't develop. They clearly do. I gave the example of uh, of, of Matthew 16, 28. Uh, and I would say even within Mark's gospel, you can see something like Mark 13 uh, is, is, is developing this to incorporate now the second coming uh, of Jesus as Matthew did. So we could do stuff like that. I think we can sort of differentiate between different strands in Mark's gospel between the prediction of an imminent kingdom which gets developed to be something like what we call a second coming. Uh, this is where then um, we would turn to, well, what gives rise to this kind of stuff? And this is when we, we go back to the building projects in Galilee uh, and, uh, and elsewhere, that this this is a reaction to issues of land displacement, for instance. So we, we do have Josephus explains the building of Tiberius, where some benefited with gifts of land, others were kicked off the land. Uh, and, and moved elsewhere. Um, there's a lot of stuff about households that turns up and households and conflict that turns up in the gospel traditions. So I think a case can be made that uh, this kind of material is a product of changing social economic circumstances in Galilee at the time. Uh, you know, there are pre-existing traditions, of course, but this is why it gets intensified, picked up uh, in the Jesus tradition. And this is... In one sense, there's, there's there are only limited ways of expressing discontent. Uh, you can take the violent route, become a bandit, or become an insurrectionist and march on that. You, you know what your fate will be there. Uh, and the other route is, uh, and this is a very common cross-cultural route, this is why I turn to people like Hobbs, Baum, and Morton when we talk about pre-political revolt, is you look to apocalyptic uh, traditions or millenarian traditions to, to displace the anxiety, displace your agitation and, and hopes for a, a great transformation of the world where people are looked after, uh, r- wrongs are righted, the correct order is put in place, people are treated better, people have a life of plenty, all that kind of thing. So this is for fantastical visions uh, of uh, an alternative future, but that's one of the few options open to, uh, in, in this context uh, to, to challenge authority. And it's, it's obviously got its limit limitations. So I think you bring those things together and that's why I would, uh, we would talk, that's why we talk about revolutionary millenarianism. It's, it's revolutionary in the sense it does want a complete overthrowing of the existing order, replacement of the Roman empire with this empire of God and, uh, elevated positions for Jesus's followers and things like that and a life of plenty for the peasantry, uh, and so on. So it's revolutionary in that sense. Um, that's why we use the language when we we tie we around and some people don't like this but we tie around with the language of party vanguard and all this and it's sort of jokey but it's sort of there is an important point to it I think behind it is that uh this is sort of grasping at um an alternative world a grasping of a, a reordering of the world it, it's I just don't think historical history has moved on enough for them to conceptualize uh how to bring this about and it, it might be nigh on impossible perhaps to have brought about any actual significant long-standing social economic change so uh the 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 revolutionary impulses go into these fantastical ideas uh, and, and so on
2: robert do you have anything to add to that or should we move on Okay, wonderful. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, and uh, let's get into uh, John the Baptist and his relationship to Jesus. So um, you call this uh, a form of ideological training, that is, Jesus's uh, time with or around the uh, uh, group of John the Baptist, um, uh, and then Jesus from there becoming a religious organizer to pick up um, uh, uh, John's apocalyptic expectations uh, in his wake. Um, I've always found, personally, uh, John the Baptist to be a good example, or good didactic lesson for, uh, to show students how we can be selective from both the Gospels and from Josephus, who has his own embarrassment around apocalypticism, um, for example. So we can uh, be selective when uh, uh, thinking about the different biases of these uh, sources. Uh, from the limited evidence uh, that we have available to us, how do you reconstruct John the Baptist's activity, his death at the hand of uh, Herod Antipas, and his relationship to the later Jesus movement?
0: We do we do have a chapter on on John the Baptist, uh, and I think it's um I think some people might criticize that, but I think it is important for because well, if too, if, but... if there is an obvious influence on uh, individual influence on Jesus, it comes from John. Um we well, I don't think we've got anything too drastically new to say about John. We engage with some of the debates and we come up with our own uh take on John the Baptist. But I think also that I mean we, we shouldn't forget that in Judea uh there are building significant building projects too the most famous of course being the rebuilding of the temple uh and john uh coming out of that context it can can be explained to some degrees coming out of that kind of context and similar settings in uh judea so we 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 talk about him in fairly conventional terms as a Uh, Millenarian preacher in his own right, uh, with a significant following. That that much seems to be true. uh, You know uh, 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 that he was popular. I mean, the accounts are exaggerated, no doubt. That the entirety of you know the countryside around Jerusalem came out to see him, but it tells you that he's popular. And Josephus is a is a Josephus is useful here, I think, because it, it it gives us an explanation of why John was killed now it, i mean it is possible it's certainly possible that both the gospel explanation not the story but the explanation uh, in mark that he criticized the marriage relations uh of herod antipas and josephus's explanation that he was just deemed a threat in the uh, out in the wilderness i think both those could be fused together as a part of a, a, a general explanation for why he was killed um now the josephus one is important though i think because it, te- it gives us an insight into what, I mean, the, the gospel, especially Mark's Mark's a very curious version because it's sort of out of step with the rest of Mark's gospel that, um, Herod's kind of got some grudging admiration for John the Baptist. Herod Antipas has got a grudging admiration for John the Baptist and quite likes him. And, um, and is, is a f- some, for one brief period in Mark's gospel, a slightly positive figure almost. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and, and it was the women who had him put to death and tricked him and all this kind of thing, but uh, which is just a gossipy story, I'm sure. But the, uh, the Josephus explanation that there's a movement in the wilderness following preaching that uh, end times are coming or whatever, which means that, the transformation in the ruling order, that's the, all you need to be, kill him. Really. You don't, you know, you might say, well, he's not, there's no evidence. That he was a violent figure who's going to come and overthrow the thing and set up his own little kingdom. Uh, well, why would you even bother asking those kind of questions from the perspective of uh, local power or Roman power? More, more generally, you don't, you kill ask questions later or you kill and don't bother asking questions later. it, uh, it depends. And that I think is, is important also for, for understanding the death of a figure like Jesus we don't have to go too much into the precise details I don't think we I mean, the, the passion narratives have been so heavily worked over. It's, it's if, if anything's difficult to reconstruct precise details, it's that section. But, um, what we can say is you can understand why a figure like Jesus was, was killed. Uh, uh, he's, he's does something at Passover, which is a big festival tense, uh, celebrating the Exodus from Pharaoh, uh, there were clearly Jews who thought that the 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 next exodus from Rome uh, might take place, and things like that. You fuse those ideas together, you get in a millenarian person uh, um, doing whatever he does in Jerusalem. There's your, there's your reason, uh, and you you know you could do it discreetly and all that kind of thing. But that's all you need to put him uh, to have him put to death. Rome won't take much persuading uh, that uh, this person who's uh, expecting the overthrow of Rome needs to die. So. Um, I think, it, and it's interesting how Jesus is executed. He's executed as a bandit. He's executed as an insurrectionist he's, and all this. Stuff. It does come through a little bit. Um, and so uh, the death of John the Baptist is a good example of, of, of yet another figure. They just kill them. <laughs> you don't have to worry too much about the details. Um, you know, when, when I, I still get people saying, but he was killed because he was son of God. And
2: it's
0: like, was he? <laughs> Where does it even say that? Uh, he was killed because he was a threat. Or perceived to be a threat, it doesn't matter how realistic that is, you just kill him. Um and it's just unfortunately the way the world the world was. So that's why I think John the Baptist is a very good example of that. And the other reason why John the Baptist is important, apart from being important in his own right, is that if John the Baptist has been killed, uh he, he's someone presumably close enough to Jesus, uh he'd certainly been aware of the fate of John the Baptist, I guess, uh being arrested and uh, and depends on where we date the death of John the Baptist. But um, that jesus knew presumably must have known that uh and the movement must have known that the same sort of fate would await them i mean any presumably any group like this would know that death is a very clear option for them so that's why we're actually kind of in some ways slightly conservative on the mar- uh the martyrdom traditions because uh, some of these we think probably do go back to uh the earliest material because this is the uh, because there's expectation uh, that you'll die, so how do you explain it? You go back uh, to the traditions you inherit, the Maccabean martyrs, and things like this. And the, there's some interesting hints, I think, in the gospel tradition that don't really have any interest in non-Jews. Uh, and so um, I think it's possible to suggest, it's, positive, it's very possible to suggest, but it's possible to make a reasonable claim that um, that the Jesus movement understood that death was an option and it had to be interpreted in materiological terms uh, uh, as, as having some kind of benefit and things like this. I don't think that's an implausible uh, thing to suggest of the early material. Quite how much goes back to historical Jesus, you tell me. But uh, I think as an early theme, very possible. And again, I think this is, this is partly because of the importance of John the Baptist. You, you know what's going to happen to such figures. It's going to happen to Jesus
1: too. I think um, one of the really uh, important points that's being raised here is is why we look at uh, not only John the Baptist, but also a number of other um, uh, millenarian uh, figures from uh, around the first few decades of the first century uh, that were rising up and and responding to um, uh, broader social and economic. material forces, much like John the Baptist, it really allows us to uh, get a a grip on some of the kinds of things that the early Jesus movement thought they were doing, how they were interpreting their world, how we could see uh, movements like John's movement or other movements, which I'll mention in a moment, um, uh, rising and um, responding to their material conditions, and also how the elite would would respond back to these movements. Um, This all provides a really important context and grounding for uh, the early Jesus movement, Um, even if some of these movements were doing things that um, were slightly different to the Jesus movement. um, We're not saying that these other movements, such as John the Baptist movement, were identical. Rather, they they form part of this broader context. So um, these other analogies of social movements uh, will include... um, a, a, a popular figure, a prophet, uh, in fact, known as the Egyptian. And um, this figure, he combined uh, an expectation of supernatural divine intervention um, and an age to come. So these kind of millenarian themes with violent subversion, including the overthrowing of Jerusalem. Um, and uh, interestingly, in the book of Acts, um, chapter 21, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, is um, confused for this figure, the Egyptian. He's confused by the elites for this figure, the Egyptian, um, who had previously stirred up a, a revolt. So the point being that, you know, from the from the perspective of the elite at least, often they couldn't see a distinction between some of these other movements and um, the Jesus movement, and we think that's really important. Uh, I could also mention another a figure uh, known as Theudis, who in the 40s CE, he led a popular movement to the River Jordan, um, again, kind of evoking uh, supernatural and millenarian themes. So he announced he would separate the River Jordan and allow his people uh, to pass through it. And um, um, this um, uh, <clears throat> uh, again kind of was was drawing on on themes from uh, the Jewish tradition and Israel's past to imagine and envisage like radical transformation of the current world order in the here and now. So it was drawing on uh, ideas about Moses parting the Red Sea and so on, and then applying them to the current context. Like John the Baptist, Theudis would uh, eventually lose his head because he was deemed a a sufficient uh, threat from the perspective of those in power, um, and again, actually, the Acts of the Apostles mentions this figure, Theudas. So we know about Theudas and the Egyptian from um, Josephus's writings, but um, also, in, interestingly, really interestingly, that they're mentioned in uh, uh, the Book of Acts. And again, it's because some of the authorities in Jerusalem uh, could uh, compared or understood the New Jesus movement as something similar to the Theudas movement. So, you know. That, I think, is one of the interesting things for us is, is how um, the elite and, and those in power would often deal with these millenarian movements as they perceived them and saw them springing up um, around uh, the place. You know, from the elite perspective, of course, um, it, it's always about let's get let's get rid of them.
2: Right, cut it off at its head, literally, in in, Mm, in many cases. (laughs) Uh, um, um, Yeah, uh, I'm I'm with you. Uh, This is all part of the environment of the first century, which is very apocalyptic. And um, the authorities uh, dealt harshly with uh, what they saw as uh, threats to their power. Uh, I think it's uh, fair to say. Uh, Let's talk a little little bit more about smoking guns, because I I combined a couple of disparate threads that I picked up while I was reading your book. So, uh, first of all, I I found a smoking gun, perhaps, about uh, Jesus' turn to millenarianism. You suggest a few reasons for this. Uh, The general economic disparity between rich and poor in his time, the uh, uh, extraction of wealth from agrarian classes, or the peasantry upward to Rome and to everybody in between, such as the tax collectors and and so on, the client state. Uh, the experience of the failure of the Herodian building projects and training in scriptural interpretation from the likes of uh, John the Baptist. Second, we might have a smoking gun uh, or a, a, a pursuit of a smoking gun, if you will, for why Jesus was arrested and crucified. Bart Ehrman famously says that this is the one question that uh, every historical Jesus scholar, everyone who uh, comes to these questions must deal with. Uh, Why is Jesus arrested and crucified? And you suggest that, uh, um, uh, along with uh, the Gospel of Mark, that the disturbance in the temple uh, and a possible insurrection that is connected to this, which I thought was very interesting, if you want to say more about that, uh, are to blame, and that Jesus is understood as a ringleader of sorts uh, for this uh, whole operation around the temple. But where these two areas align for me uh, is in. to some degree, there is a speculative or tentative and almost unknowable solution to the problems at hand. Uh, and you talk about uh, writing an imaginative history. So I'm just curious if, if you can talk about how you as historians handle the ultimately unsolvable quality of these questions uh, and the desire for a smoking gun uh, uh, and um, a do, do these offer satisfying enough conclusions to you or do you ever waver on how to understand these crucial questions?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've kind of hit the nail on the head here in a way is as with any of these things is it's proof is very difficult. Uh, and, uh, and, and when you're writing a life, we, 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 we did touch upon this is that, um, we're having to follow a narrative outline we already have and we can't uh, and there's not much we can do about that. And that we, every time we're doing this, we don't want to keep saying, but we don't know it happened at all. We're just saying that the themes associated with this part of the narrative may have been early and that's about as best we can do. Sadly, it'd be great if we could, you know, confirm all this kind of thing, but that's just the way it is. So, um, uh, so if you talk about general terms, like about the death of Jesus, I mean, even if it wasn't the action in the temple, the idea he was crucified at Passover um, in association with crowds, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That provides an explanation as good as any, I think. I can't still can't ultimately prove it, but it tells you something about the earliest material. It tells you about this material that uh, it's it's got an anti-Roman slant to it. It's got a millenarian slant to it it's got it's tied up with uh what you uh, the popularity of a movements like this, how they're perceived, and all that kind of thing so uh even if we don't know the details, I think some of those general points that must have been early on that uh, i think you can make a strong case that early on this was the movement was perceived in such terms both by the movement itself and by outsiders um that's not to say there are other aspects of this movement uh or anything like that, but I think you could say that in general terms uh, in some ways it's not i mean I mean you can't write biography just based on themes I don't think uh, it wouldn't be a life then would it it would just be an assessment of his ideas or the ideas of the earlier movement and some to some degree is that um but not re- what we didn't do in the book and what future lives of Jesus might want to do is do what you said in terms of imaginative thinking so we might not be able to say I mean, say anything really about in one sense about his childhood uh, and early years but you could start saying well all right, what was typical of children in rural Galilee at that time? What kind of education might they have received? What uh, agricultural practices might they have learned? Uh, What happens in gendered terms? What would happen to boys and girls? Where would they be directed? Um, uh, And and things like this. So we could say this is a typical of, uh, or these are the kinds of possibilities open to children growing up in Galilee and uh, you could make you could do sort of those sort of imaginative reconstructions in that sense you, again you, you who knows what peculiarities the the individual went through jesus we 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 might not know that uh we don't know that but we could at least you could that's what that's a place for historical imagination imagining what you know nazareth was like uh at the turn of the first century or something like that uh and the kinds of things and you and you could do that with all sorts of things i mean how might uh I mean, again, we do it with a millenarianism in a way. It's like, well, okay, if these ideas were in the uh, were in the environment, why might they have been uh, people latched onto them? So even if even if I not that I believe this, but even if Jesus didn't exist, the, we can say why do millenarian ideas emerge associated with Galilee at that time? There you go. We've got an imaginative and but plausible explanation for why these ideas emerge when. And where they did, and that's why I think it's important to downplay the the great man thing, and instead think of ideas like that. It's not going to make for a wholly satisfactory life. Uh it, it never can unless we find unless you know there's some great find of evidence from Nazareth, or, you know, or whatever. Um, But I mean, the, I mean, I, I'm actually working on a modern biography at the moment of of uh, the aforementioned A. L. Morton, and he's good. this is, i've got his letters correspondence uh essays where he lived and all this and i even and now it's made me it's open my eyes even more i'm just thinking i just wish i knew what he was doing in you know in spring of 1956 but i, I you know i haven't got that and i have and, and and there's some big questions that i have to kind of just th- think well guess and i'm thinking if i'm doing that with a modern figure what am i what's it like with historical jesus you know uh the the gaps are so vast like that but it, so we we have to be content with those sort of imaginative general things about what galilee was like at the time um and we lack confidence to be precise whether jesus uh what jesus said and did but we can be you know cautiously optimistic about the kinds of ideas present and associated that became associated with him
1: Yeah, I, I think I want to um, answer this and just add a few things to what James has said by by building on what I was saying before about how um, uh, religious idea uh, sorry ideas don't in the uh, don't generally create new ideas. Rather, new ideas are formed um, through the interaction of uh, um, people with. Their concrete material environment, the various social forces that make up that environment, and so on. So the point is, is that, and I, and I think this is where our historical, uh, our uh, historical material methodology really helps us because it allows us to, um, in some ways, integrate the the world of ideas with the 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 actual uh, concrete material situation as it was was. Uh, existing at the time, or as we can best reconstruct it at the time, and to talk about how those things may be um, uh, intersecting with one another and influencing one another, and not necessarily in an overly deterministic way. Um, I think one of the uh, critiques that's often wrongly made about reconstructions of the historical Jesus and of early Galilee and the early Jesus movement that, um, uh, accentuate, let's say some of the political dimensions or this idea that Jesus was, um, uh, kind of more of a revolutionary figure or political operator or something like that. Um, some of the pushback that usually comes at that assumes that, um, scholars are adopting a, a deterministic, um, uh, approach or methodology. Historical materialism is not um, deterministic in that way. Rather, it allows us to um, hypothesize and to explore how certain ideas or reactions may be being generated um, uh, as a consequence of uh, what's going on on the ground. Now, the problem with assuming the deterministic perspective is that it's often actually, this is assumed usually by people who are not using historical materialism. So they will say, for example, that, um, oh, look, the, the environment in, in Galilee uh, is, um, you know, there was maybe just a slight modest increase in the overall uh, uh, quality of life or something. People, some people were making money. There wasn't a lot of social upheaval and so on. And so the early Jesus movement's um, ideas their ideology, and so on, uh, uh, can't have been caused by um, the material conditions they were living in. Uh, Well, actually, from a historical materialist perspective, that um, explanation is insufficient. Um, uh, What you've done is you've said that um, uh, you've you've failed to show (laughs) how the uh, material conditions of the environment and the uh, the ideology of the early Jesus movement, the religious ideas, and so on—that were that um, how that how these two things go together, how they interact—and the point I'm trying to make is that they always interact. Um, ideas don't come out of nothing; um, people don't just think think them up out of thin air. So, um, uh, I think this is really, you know. A, a, a really important aspect of our book. And um, uh, I think we're, we're trying to model and show a way that this can be done. Even if we're possibly wrong about some of the, the details, I think the overall approach on this is one that uh, seriously needs to be adopted within uh, historical Jesus research going forward.
2: And I think you guys deal with it uh, rather well, uh, in fact. So let's wrap up uh, uh, the interview with a couple of final questions. Um, As I neared the end of the book, one thought that um, interested me was that if the original message of the uh, Jesus party, the early Jesus party was, as you present it, subsumed as they were in class conflict and millenarian expectations, then at some point between then and the fourth century, a tremendous reversal or betrayal of that message evolved in Christian history. Uh, spiritualizing or theologizing Jesus for lack of better terms um, uh, I sense that you might think that the author of the Gospel of John was involved in this evolution in some ways but I also wondered how uh, you would characterize the shift away from the socio-economic and political grievances of the earliest Jesus party that were at the heart of uh, his message to whatever else that Christianity became how would you characterize that? Hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah uh it's, it, it, a long answer to it um i think we've got to go back to get uh, uh, we'll be that long don't worry uh the, we've got to go back to uh galilee again uh and what was striking to us is that everyone talks about mission to the poor and all this content with the poor and there's no doubt that is a clear concern in the gospel tradition so we're not denying that but actually we prefer the term mission to the rich that uh the the target audience in the gospel tradition the synoptic tradition appears to be sinners uh tax collectors uh, and the term sinner and sinners and you can look at this in uh greek hebrew aramaic syriac and so on over from Hebrew Bible and the Psalms through to uh, Babylonian Talmud. So we're talking about good century, uh, not century, good millennium here. The word's pretty stable uh, in the sense that it means someone who's, uh, who's perceived to be acting uh, as if they're uh, beyond the law, acting against the law, acting against God. Um, but whenever the socioeconomic status is mentioned, it's always rich, exploitative, and so on. So it t- this is partly why it's tied up with tax collectors who uh, whatever the realities have this reputation as being rich, exploitative and so on. And, and so you see things like uh, the parable of rich man and Lazarus, or you talk the sayings like the eye of the needle, all these sayings about rich and poor and things we think come from that context where there is a uh, the idea that the rich give up the wealth in some degree and uh, perhaps, perhaps all for Jesus, I don't know, uh, and come to the movement, but there are all, whatever, there are these connections with that go beyond uh, the peasantry, the tax collectors wealthy sinners, whoever they may be, uh, it seems to be a broad enough term to include all sorts, uh, people perhaps at court, uh, heads of wealthier households. So already there, you've got uh, uh, this kind of interesting contradiction or networks between the peasantry and extending, extending beyond it. In fishing networks, you've got tax collectors and fishing uh, 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 fishermen interconnected. So uh, there's a network already growing and developing. Once you get out, out outside there, when it's, it's the, the movement spreads to towns around the Mediterranean and things, you've got people uh, associated with synagogues. You've got people associated with workplace. You've got people associated with whatever it's, and clearly we, Paul gives some indication in one Corinthians of a mix, uh, socio economic mix. So already there, there are people with competing and different, uh, material interests. So in one sense it's also pretty clear that people giving up their wealth didn't happen all the time. And Luke's got the interesting stories about this. Uh, Zacchaeus only gives up half of his or whatever, a fraction of his wealth. Uh, there's the story obviously in, uh, in Acts about the people who don't give up all the money. The reason these stories presumably exist is because people weren't giving up their wealth to the movement and, and so on. So, but they're, they're spreading across these kind of networks and soon into imperial networks is uh, quickly enough. Now, I mean, I, I, betrayal isn't, I hope we didn't, we might've used it. I don't, I would, I don't think we use the term betrayal. I'm not sure I would do. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a common enough term. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, the movement spreads accordingly with material in line with different material and in whatever interests, competing interests. So in one sense, it does, you can see how the language of a new empire, a uh, new kingdom, new rulership, new hierarchy can feed into Rome quite easily. This is the fulfillment of those millenarian promises. You can see uh, also how opposition to that uh, can be retained because there is some very stark sayings on uh, rich and poor in, in the gospel tradition. Um, again, I, I would push back a little bit on the language of theologizing in the sense that you're not, I don't disagree with you, but I think it's all theologizing in one sense. It's earlier and later theologizing uh, for different kind of interests. So, John's gospel, as you mentioned, is now moving, and Robert has got has, has said some uh, uh, comparable things on this, and I'll leave that to him on his his, his use of counter revolutionary reading of John's Gospel. Let's say, uh, but John's Gospel um, uh, high, heightens this idea of Jesus being the dominant ruling figure, uh, not simply who's uh, head of the judges, but he's he's, he's equated with God in, in 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 a very strong sense in John's Gospel, uh, and there is the we're on the way to the creation of a distinctive again, I I use the term with quotation marks, Christian identity, but there is the world and there is the Jews and there is what I guess became known as the third race and all this kind of thing emerging with John's gospel. Uh, And we're moving away from a lot of the kind of peasant millenarian interests at this point, uh, calming those, uh, uh, those expectations, pushing them to the distant future and so on. And so, you know, to cut the very long story short, as this movement spreads throughout its networks and becomes the Roman Empire, yes, it does, but it also uh, and then goes on to become the language of feudal Europe and and so on. But at the same time, the it, it be, as that becomes the dominant ideology, the dominant language, it's also the language used to oppose it as well. So uh, it's the language, and it does become the language of opposition to Rome, to uh, uh, feudal masters in Europe, and things like this. So when we do get peasant rebellions, I mean, my, my favorite one is the 1381 English uh, peasants' revolt straight back down to straight back to that language of Jesus uh, um and and reapplying it to uh to fuel England and so on so that tension and that tension's there from the beginning really uh the tension is there for a new empire a new kingdom and all that's already there in the preaching it's it's a, it's going to be a same old new hierarchy so to speak the people occupying the positions might change but there's still uh, a, a, a new hierarchy in place to replace it and the promises go in different directions. One is that people in power will be see themselves as the fulfillment of these promises. But I'm putting this very crudely, of course. Others who feel uh, 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 left out, left behind, left outside, rightly or wrongly, or fairly or unfairly, can use this language as as a way of challenging those power structures as well. So that binary uh, continues in uh, the, throughout the history of Christianity, obviously up to the present.
1: Yeah, I think, um, uh, just to add to what James has said there, um, some of the, I mean, the earliest kind of, if we're going to talk about the early Jesus movement and some of the earliest ideas, I think it, um, that what we find is this this a- a political ambivalence um, or uh, multivalence, perhaps, at, at, at the core of its ideology, which was both... Revolutionary and reactionary. I mean, some scholars have talked about um, Christianity as being caught in this complex tension between revolution and reaction, in the sense that it provides um, texts and uh, justification both for uh, you know wholesale change and and um, rebellion against power, but also it does this by adopting the language of power and empire. So um, this multivalence within the the early Jesus movement and the tradition that it it kind of created, um, as we see within the New Testament and the various texts within the New Testament, um, uh, as well as providing an impetus for um, uh, yeah rebelling against empires, it also nicely provided an ideology for it, and I think um, I mean you you mentioned about uh, John and yeah uh, my own views on John is that it has a bit of a an authoritarian streak within it, but it's really interesting to to contrast um, the some of the the ideas um, or characterizations of Jesus between, say, the synoptic gospels and and John. Um, uh, this is something that's not often done. Usually, it's it's kind of John's the spiritual gospel, and that you know can be analyzed um, <laughs> politically in this way as well. Uh, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is how. Um, There's the famous saying uh, that's repeated in the synoptics uh, a few times that Jesus um, uh, has not come to be, or the Son of Man has not come to be uh, served, but to serve. Um, And I think that the, you know, and I'm simplifying a little bit, but the opposite idea is present within John. John's Jesus has come to be served in a sense. He is um uh, a much more uh, elevated figure and that combined with the um, uh, 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 you know and, and 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 divinely justified as such and um, and I think, John's Jesus, in particular, um, as well as the the Jesus of of the Book of Revelation, for example, once he's sitting on the throne and all that kind of stuff, like it, this is your this is your Jesus in power. So that becomes the the um, uh, a, a, a useful uh, ideological basis and theological basis for the idea of a Christian empire, as it will will come to play out a couple of uh, centuries after. Um, uh, the initial organizing of the early Jesus movement.
2: Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you both for uh, your time today. We've taken up quite a bit of your time today and tonight for you, uh, Robert. So uh, thank you for uh, uh, playing ball there. Uh, it's been great to speak with you. Um, I'm curious: Are you collaborating on another project going forward? There's uh, much much to say uh, in cl- terms of class conflicts with regard to Paul, for example. Uh, but if not, uh, are you what move? What direction are you moving in uh, scholastically uh, next, and in an individual in individual well, terms?
0: Well, the- we've we've discussed the possibility of this, the rest of the first century or whatever, uh, or something now, like this. Books,
2: how many books would that be?
0: Well, uh, as a general one. Yeah. I mean, as, oh, okay. I, I, I think I'd go mad if I had to do like an eight volume history of Christianity uh, or something. There's Paul, uh, Luke
2: Acts, and, yeah. and you know, whatever else you want to do.
0: Uh, but a nice general one that doesn't have to go into, you know, it doesn't have to justify everything. Uh, <laughs> not too many. Portland. Um, so I, we, 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 we're talking about that, about what possibilities there are about that, let's say. Uh, me personally, I'm writing a, I don't know if it's a biography or a sort of a biography uh, uh, to explore the ideas of A.L. Morton, a figure I m- mentioned, a, a British Marxist historian of the 20th century. Um, so I'm quite a way into that uh, at the moment and, and it gives me much happiness to be away from historical Jesus studies and, uh, but uh, we've got the next quest for the historical Jesus coming out next year, a big edited
1: volume. Um,
0: and that's impressive. And I, I guess it'll be out for SPL 2024.
1: Look out for that. Currently within my own uh, individual research, I'm wanting to explore uh, quite a bit more the, the uh, fishing industry as it was uh, being impacted by the um, social upheavals and material changes within uh, Galilee in the early first century. So some of the stuff I was talking about earlier, and we do um, briefly sketch this out in the book, I'm really wanting to expand that on that a lot more, uh, particularly picking up on the fact that the the imagery of fishing is so prevalent within um, the, the, the gospels, you know, like it seems that some of these fishing communities was really, um, uh, central to uh, um, uh, the foundations of this movement so so to explore uh, in various ways um, uh, the consequences of, of that.
2: Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to all of that. And hopefully you're a book of uh, wrapping up the first century in, in many years to come. <laughs> uh, again, uh, uh, James Crossley, Robert Miles, thank you so much for your time today and for your work on this historical materialist Jesus, as you uh, put it, and for being our guests on the New Books Network. Uh, again, uh, their book is called Jesus, A Life in Class Conflict, and it's available now from Zero Books wherever quality books are sold. I've been Rob Heaton, uh, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books and Biblical Studies. And I'll be with you again on your next download, but uh, in the meantime, never stop questioning. Bye-bye.